Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Wednesday, December 7th. Right now, we'll take a closer look at the new controversy surrounding Twitter and its new owner, Elon Musk, that led Trump to propose suspending the Constitution. New York Times media correspondent Michael Grinbaum joins us for that. This is an important story in its own right, Trump or no Trump, we should say, about what standards Twitter or any social media company should use for blocking information that it deems to be misinformation. And we'll talk about people leaving Twitter and who's deciding to stay. Michael, thanks for coming on for this. Welcome back to WNYC. Hi, Brian. Thanks so much for having me this morning. I think before we open the phones, we should start at the beginning on this particular Twitter story, because many listeners don't know about this case at all. Then we'll talk about Musk's decision on Friday and the larger implications for truth and freedom on social media generally. So during the 2020 election campaign, the New York Post published a story about Hunter Biden and Twitter executives at the time decided to block posts that link to it. What was the story and why did Twitter limit its dissemination? This is among the more convoluted sagas. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll try to comb through it uh, uh, piece by piece. But uh, it really did set up a firestorm. This brings us back to October 2020, um, right at the uh, climax of the presidential campaign when the New York Post published that story. Um, and uh, what happened was that Twitter decided, because the story was based on data from a, uh, a abandoned laptop of Hunter Biden's, and it was unclear at that time, there was some debate over whether the data had been hacked, uh, that it would be irresponsible to uh, allow it to be disseminated on Twitter as widely as other news stories. And so the platform... Um, it actually uh, turned off the New York Post Twitter account, and it began suspending accounts, um, including from the uh, uh, Kaylee McEnany, who at the time was the White House press secretary, uh, who were linking to this particular story. Some of no. the context is uh, uh, really for the media, some of the hangover from 2016. If you remember the uh, WikiLeaks, uh, the hacked emails from the Democratic National Committee uh, that proved uh, uh, rather embarrassing for uh, Hillary Clinton and her campaign. I think that Twitter was very concerned that perhaps this information was either been uh, obtained through illegal means, uh, was being weaponized in uh, a ways that would uh, 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 result in uh, uh, Biden being unfairly uh, uh, assailed uh, for it. And uh there was a debate within the organization about whether to allow it to uh, to be distributed. And Twitter's CEO at the time, Jack Dorsey, was not part of the decision to block that material. And your article reminds us that Dorsey later reversed that decision to block and said it had been a mistake. So what was Jack Dorsey's reasoning for that? 
Yeah, this was really fraught even at the time, and there was quite a bit of uh, news coverage about it. Um, I should note also that many organizations, in, including the New York Times, were um, you know attempting to examine the evidence that the New York Post had presented, uh, trying to obtain it independently themselves to see if there was any news worth reporting there. Um, and, you know, Dorsey, just a few weeks later, um, or it might have been even within two weeks, I, I, I'm forgetting the exact timeline, but uh, reversed it and said it had been a mistake not to allow what was uh, an article in the New York Post, which, uh, although leaning right, is certainly a major national news outlet, uh, that to uh, simply suppress the story as opposed to allowing it to be linked to, allowing the public discourse to uh, run its course um, uh, allowing other journalists to debate the merits of the story was, in fact, a, a, a not the right decision. It was too draconian. And he actually told Congress uh, in testimony in uh, uh, last year uh, straight up that it had been a mistake. So do you think that with everything you just described that happened in October of 2020, um, there was actually more attention paid to this story about Hunter Biden's laptop than there would have been if Twitter had just let the links uh, continue and the New York Post's own posts on Twitter continue? What's interesting, and uh, we're getting slightly ahead of ourselves, but in, in the files that came out over the last few days, these internal documents at Twitter that give some backstory to this uh, this decision-making, there was a Democratic uh, congressman who, um, who a clear Biden champion um, who, who had uh, very little interest in supporting Trump. But uh, this congressman actually sent a note to Twitter's uh, uh, executive team saying that by censoring the article and sort of generating this entire uh, uh, discussion over uh, First Amendment and free speech on social media platforms, it had actually magnified the impact of it. And that there was now an entirely side conversation going on all about uh, the merits of uh, whether conservative news outlets were being uh, deprived of their First Amendment rights. There was a huge, uh, much wider national interest in the contents of this laptop. Did it show something untoward about Hunter Biden's business dealings? Uh, and that merely if Twitter had merely, uh, you know, treated it like it like it would of any other news story, it might have come and gone. Uh, it's hard to say, but it might have come and gone the way that many news articles do. Yeah. So Trump's post that the Constitution should be suspended to cancel the 2020 election. That was about this, even though that article got more play to the public in general <laughs> than it would have without this Twitter firestorm. Well, what's so fascinating, and, and Brian, I think maybe the reason we're even talking about it today is that Twitter, for whatever reason, has this unique role in our political universe, certainly in our media universe. It's this hothouse. Uh, and it's it's sort of been this de facto town square for um, over a decade now, where um, I realize it's a trite term, but I'll, I'll use the term the chattering classes, uh, sort of convene, I think, to hash out uh, issues of the day to uh, debate what, what sort of becomes the conventional wisdom uh, of of the the media and political world, um, and so there's there can be this odd sense of ownership over the platform um, by by its its more dedicated users, uh, 
And I think that's why Elon Musk's acquisition of the company and now his uh, his pledge, I, I, I suppose, to um, uh, change the way that the platform works to uh, make it uh, more freewheeling, allow more voices on there uh, from uh uh, different groups that, that, uh, for instance, uh, uh, white supremacist groups uh, that had been uh, removed from the platform in the past. Mm -hmm. I think that's why this whole debate has brought up such strong emotions and passions and why uh, the discourse about it has risen to the level it has. Indeed. So to pick up the thread, Michael, this past Friday, Elon Musk announced that he would release internal Twitter company documents about that decision from 2020 on the New York Post story, the implication being that the old Twitter management censored reporting that could hurt Biden and help Trump, and that that could reflect bias, not just journalistic standards or deliberations on standards of behavior. Have you now seen those internal documents? Well, uh, we've seen the documents that, let me back up and say that uh, Musk who now has uh, uh, access to these documents because of his uh, purchase of the company. Uh, he has chosen so far uh, two journalists uh, to which he's distributed the documents and uh, essentially entrusted them with the initial public reporting. Uh, one of those journalists is Matt Taibbi, um, who is a veteran independent investigative reporter um, who for many years really was a major voice of the American political left. Um, your listeners probably might remember him from a free decor article about Goldman Sachs in the wake of the Great Recession, where he referred to the bank as a vampire squid. Uh, now, Taibbi, over the Trump era, um, I, I, I sort of put in my article that his fan base shifted. Um, he still has quite a large following. Uh, his commentary about the Trump administration often diverged from the views of a lot of mainstream Democrats. Uh, he was very skeptical from the start about claims of collusion between Russia and the Trump campaign um, and other issues like that. Um, and so he's also become a major avatar of the complaint that uh, big tech companies like Twitter have essentially enforced a liberal worldview and have been hostile to uh, the voices of conservatives and those on the, uh, the right wing. Um, the other journalist is Barry Weiss, who uh, is a former editor and writer at The New York Times. Um, she left the paper, resigned from the paper a few years ago and started a, uh, a Substack site called Common Sense, um, which also uh, uh, sort of presents, uh, bills itself as an independent outlet. So right. it's, Large, I think it's largely I, right, right, right leaning uh, Barry Weiss for context. But go ahead. I think that uh, the reason I'm spending some time on that is to say that uh, these sort of journalism debates are very much part and parcel of, of what happened over the last few days. Um, clearly, Musk did not want a mainstream uh, sort of large corporate news organization to be the one, the vessel to assess uh, these documents. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, he, he complained over the weekend that uh, this has not gotten enough coverage in major uh, news organizations. He said that reporters were pretending it was a nothing burger was the phrase that he used. Uh, and I should say that us at the New York Times, we did request access to all the documents ourselves so we could make an independent assessment, uh, but we did not hear back from Twitter. 
So, so far, the documents are really just available to an extremely small group of observers. Matt in Brooklyn, you're on WNYC. Hi, Matt. Thanks for calling in. Oh, hey, Brian. Thank you for taking my call. Yeah, I'm calling about, you were talking about where a line should be drawn. One mm-hmm. place I personally feel strongly about is the idea of defining misinformation and disinformation as somehow not free speech. Now, if I understand the Constitution right, they've always been free speech. Again, Twitter's a private company. There's this whole new issue of should Twitter be considered the public square, which I guess is going to be hammered out. But I'm just always troubled about people saying we have to stop misinformation, disinformation. That's free speech. Adults and people, it's up to them to figure out what's true, not some nanny to listen to it first and then read it first and say if you can see it because they've decided whether it's misinformation or disinformation. But it's fully free speech to lie. It's so strange in our society. We're having a problem with this in this country, in my opinion. Matt, thank you very much. So who would talk back? to Matt and argue the other side of that. Certainly you you understand where he's coming from, Michael, that, and it's what Twitter originally said about itself, I think, uh, we're just a platform. We're like the soapbox on the street corner where anybody can say get up and say anything they want. They are allowed to lie, uh, but user beware. Matt, I, I think you laid out the issue, uh, the battlegrounds of that issue ex- exceptionally well. Uh, what What is misinformation? What is disinformation? Who defines that? Um, a lot of what we're seeing, the backdrop to this whole discussion we're having is the end of gatekeepers uh, in our uh, in our media and, and in a lot of ways more broadly in our society. There, there always used to be a, a, a filter, as it were, for the information that uh, most of the public heard. I think um, the files that did come out, and we haven't actually talked about what's in them, uh, the files were presented by Elon Musk as evidence of this rank, uh, I should say framed by him as evidence of censorship, of a pernicious influence of the left on Twitter executives saying that they came under pressure to suppress this report. There's another interpretation. Um, When I read the files, which essentially is a discussion among Twitter executives of how to handle this very complex situation. You have a unconfirmed report. Maybe it's based on hacked materials. Maybe it isn't. We're in the last few weeks of a hugely polarizing presidential campaign. It actually reminded me of the conversation that I've um, either been a part of or overheard in my many years at the New York Times. It's very hard to make these editorial decisions assessing information, assessing whether or not it's responsible to relay it to a much broader audience is very much a part of, uh, I guess, the I should say the art of journalism because it's less a science than it is an art. Uh, and I, I don't, sympathy is not the right word, but I, I guess recognition would be the word. When I read these, uh, uh, these debates among the business executives at Twitter, content moderation, they were trying to be editors. And that is a very difficult thing to do. You reported in your story that even some ardent critics of Twitter were less impressed than Musk with these documents, saying the exchanges merely showed a group of executives earnestly debating how to deal with an unconfirmed news report that was based on information from a stolen laptop. So who are some of those Twitter critics? And tell us more about the urban, 
the earnest deliberations that they perceived? <laughs> well, um, I guess one interesting example was uh, these these files, uh, which were initially reported by uh, by Matt Taibbi, the journalist I mentioned before. Uh, they came on Friday afternoon. Uh, Tucker Carlson, the Fox News host, on his program Friday evening, picked up on this report. He called it, and I'll quote, uh, the documents show a systemic violation of the First Amendment, the largest example of that in modern history. Now, Carlson is someone who has been beating this drum for many, many months, uh, that liberals stifle speech, that the big tech platforms are uh, autocratic, I guess, in, in their um, uh, decisions on... on <laughs> what is allowed to be disseminated on their platforms. But one of his guests was Miranda Devine, who is a New York Post columnist, um, who is uh, uh, certainly on the uh, right wing of the political equation. But she said on air that these documents did not, they were not a smoking gun. And she said that although she uh, supported the release of more information from behind the scenes of Twitter, she basically conceded that this had been overhyped and that the suggestion that this particular evidence revealed a, uh, a conspiracy at the highest levels of the company eh, didn't quite reach that threshold. So that was an interesting divide that played out on the airwaves of Fox News pretty much in real time in the wake of the release of these documents. Interesting that most of the callers on our board, Michael, here in, you know, what is mostly progressive and at least anti-Trump and skeptical of Musk, New York, um, most of the callers on our board, though it's thoroughly unscientific as a poll, are calling in to say, hey, it's free speech. You know, like our last caller, I could go down the list. I'm not because the, the point has been made. Uh, but people are saying it is not up to some elites in a corporate suite or the government to say what somebody should be able to post on a platform like Twitter. Interesting. Uh, I mean, I think that uh, I think that defaulting to more speech being better is is a pretty common point of view. Now, I, I mean, I should we should we should point out, by the way, that Twitter does not fundamentally have a, a First Amendment responsibility to allow any voices on its platform. It's it's a privately owned company, um, you know. And um, if, if someone feels they can't express themselves there, there are there are other venues and other places to to put out uh, their points of view. So I, I think that sometimes this discussion gets fuzzy because there, there's sort of a claim that um, there's an absolute right to uh, the First Amendment for users of, of, you know, what is essentially a private company's product. But that said, as we as we noted, it does play this, uh, I guess, privileged role in the public discourse. And I think the fact that Jack Dorsey, the, the former CEO, later came to regret this decision, that he felt it had been an overreaction, that uh, to go so far as to stifle any links and any discussion about this article published in a major New York City newspaper it felt heavy handed. It felt uh, just, you know, just just a step too far. I, I think it's quite notable that um, he did come to that conclusion. Can you put into words, Michael, the standards that Twitter was trying to establish in 2020 
and how Musk in these first weeks of owning Twitter has begun to change them. Musk has called himself a free speech absolutist, but has also said, quote, Twitter obviously cannot become a free for all hellscape or anything can be said with no consequences. So what's actually changing? Well, uh, in the documents that, that were disclosed, uh, th- there's a lot of discussion about Twitter's internal policy about hacked materials. And so the initial decision to stifle uh, uh, the New York Post report was because there was some suspicion at the time that the information from the laptop uh, had been uh, obtained through illegal or shady beams. And so that was sort of the internal rationale. Um to what Musk is changing there, I would go back to the point about um, the difference between being a business person and being a, a journalist or an editor. Um, you know, Musk has called himself a first person, uh, excuse me, a First Amendment absolutist. He he has uh, pledged to open up this platform and uh, which has uh, his fans have been thrilled about, you know, Twitter should be free. Uh uh, you know, we all gain when all voices are allowed. In practice, that is a much stickier, much more difficult proposition. And you mentioned users who are abandoning Twitter. Part of the reason is because they find the platform overrun at times with uh racist voices, uh, you know, white supremacist voices, uh, trolls, uh, people who are posting uh, revenge porn. I mean, all these manner of, of sort of ill ill uses of the platform crop up when you throw away the tools of content moderation and, and uh, preventing it from, I guess, in his words, becoming a hellscape. Again, when you actually have, when you actually take control of something, I think some of these issues that are very black and white from uh, an outsider's perspective the actual implementation of them becomes very, very complex. And I think we're seeing Musk deal with that in real time. I've already mentioned on this show this week uh, the excellent edition of Kai Wright's show, Notes from America, on Sunday night. I'm sure some of you listening now heard it, but he had two guests who certainly are not from the political right, certainly are critics of Elon Musk, and certainly are critics of Donald Trump, I would imagine, but um, were saying they were going to stay on Twitter because of the community that they've been able to find in various uh, direct connections with a lot of kinds of people. And for them, it was LGBTQ Twitter. It was black Twitter, um, communities that are hard to find a lot of people in the physical world, or let's say as many people in the physical world to engage in, to create power with, um, and to talk about things that the mainstream media uh, doesn't cover very much. So, Michael, who is leaving Twitter? Um, well, I think there's there has been quite a lot of discussion about the uh, rise in uh, anti-Semitic content, and and uh, I think there was a study that came out. I, I don't have it right in front of me, but a couple of weeks ago that the um, uh, quantity of uh, uh, hate speech has skyrocketed uh, uh, since Musk's uh, takeover. And so I think there are some users who simply don't want to wade into that morass. Uh, they don't want to have their 
their timeline kind of, you know, filled with uh, that sort of garbage talk, um, uh, you know, all day, every day. Um, I have found that uh, despite the uh, the reports, I'll, I'll, I'll botch the Mark Twain line if I, if I try to remember it, but, but uh, d- despite the reports of Twitter's demise, and the, there was a night a few weeks ago where everyone seemed to be uh, kind of putting out eulogies for the platform. It still seems to be going strong. Uh, you know, journalists and politicians and uh, academics and thought leaders are, are still uh, involved in the discussion. Um, so it's it's unclear to me whether the platform will actually kind of fall away. Um, as your caller mentioned, fall away or become really- become right wing social media, while other things rise as more left wing social media. You don't see that happening. Or you don't know I think yet. That, well, I think right now there isn't a sort of an agreed upon uh, alternative. And and I think until that happens, all the utilities of Twitter, uh, the usefulness of it, will continue to out- outweigh the concerns and the doubts. Yeah. All right. We leave it there with Michael Grinbaum, media correspondent for The New York Times. Michael, thank you so much. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be on. Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.